0: Father, we thank you for the beautiful Sabbath day that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that we can come into this comfortable building in our comfortable clothes, driving here in our comfortable cars, to sit with our Bibles in our hands. And Lord, as we come together this morning, we don't do this merely out of a formality, or because 19 million other people in the world do it. But We do it, Lord, because we want to have an encounter with you. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit would be here, that he would take the message and send it home to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I will do a quick few minute overview. For those of you that weren't here last night, this is a three part series. This morning we were looking at part two, John chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room here with his disciples. He is about to uh, commemorate what would be the last Passover that had any significance to it. Uh, He is there with the disciples who are obviously have been bickering amongst themselves about who should be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Judas has deceived Jesus or uh, betrayed Jesus at this point, and there's much that is weighing on the mind of Jesus as he is there with his disciples. And in John chapter 13 and verse 35, Jesus makes this piece or gives this piece of advice to his disciples. He says, a new commandment uh, give I unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another." Now, you'll know that there are other places in the Bible where Jesus told the disciples that they were to love uh, each other as they would want to be loved. But here in the final few hours of the life of Christ, uh, only moments, only hours before he would be uh, condemned and ultimately crucified, Jesus, as his heart is weighing heavy, as the gospel commission is about to be laid upon the shoulders of this bickering group of men... Jesus reaches down into the deep recesses of his heart and he shares with them a piece of advice that maybe we might be tempted to just glaze over and continue reading the larger story. But this little piece of advice that Jesus gives has huge ramifications. He says not to love as they want to be loved, but he says to love as he has loved them. And then he makes this bombshell statement in the next verse, verse 35, he says, By this, by what? By this. By the fact of them loving one another as he has loved them. By this, Jesus says, shall all men know that you are, disi- you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Back in the time of Christ there were many different religious leaders that people followed and they had different ways of distinguishing themselves from these different religious leaders. But in Jesus' mind, what would distinguish his disciples as being distinctively different from other religious leaders' disciples is that they would have harmony amongst themselves, that they would manifest in their heart a love for one another very similar to the love, identical to the love that Jesus showed them. The way that we would show the world that we are disciples of Christ, Jesus says, is if we have love one towards another as he has loved us. Now, I should give you some pause for thinking here a little bit this morning. How is it that you love one another? Of course, it's easy to love those who are kind to you. Of course, it's easy to love those who are nice to you. Of course, it's easy to love those who love you. But what about those who mistreat you? What about those who are impatient with you? What about those who make your life miserable? Do you love them as Jesus loves you the ultimate expression that i believe we see in the life of christ is when he hangs upon the cross he has gone through all of this terrible physical agony and the emotional draining of being rejected by those who he loved by being cast to the side by the the world at large and as he hangs there upon the cross cruelly treated beaten spit upon and now being ridiculed he says father forgive them For they know not what they do. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love them as I have loved you. The servant of the Lord tells us this in the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901. He only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Who are the ones that know God? Those who love their fellow man, it's a biblical concept. The Bible says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We cannot know God if we do not have love one towards another. It's a biblical principle. But then she goes on and she says this. This is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality or life, strength, energy in our churches. Why is there little strength, energy and life? Why is there little vitality in our churches? Because the servant of the Lord tells us there is little love. love. She goes on and she says this. Theology, and we have plenty of theology in our church, praise the Lord. Theology, she says, is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. Somebody should say amen to that. Theology is valueless, she says, unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. Now, when you think of the idea of saturation, what is it that comes into your mind? The sponge, we talked about it last night. You have your sponge on your counter there, and that thing in between washing, it gets dried up and it curls up, but when you stick that thing underneath the water, it fills up with the water, and it becomes saturated. It simply means it cannot hold anymore. It is so full, it is so overflowing that there is no room left inside of it to hold any more water. And the servant of the Lord tells us that if we want our theology to have value to it, it must be first saturated with the love of Jesus. And then she goes on and she says, God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of, of the character of God. And then she makes this little statement. We read this last night. And this is just a review from last night. Nine manuscript release, page 128, paragraph three. She says, a loving, lovable Christian. A what kind of Christian? A loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Now listen, we're not talking this morning about a weak, mandy pamby half-sided love. We're not talking about the type of love that you can get at any corner evangelical church. What we are talking about is a type of love that moves people to have a closer walk with the Lord and moves them to dig deeper into the reasons why we have this type of love in our hearts. It is love that ultimately leads to the truths of the truth of God's word. If you want to be effective in your witnessing for God, <clears throat> the best way that you can do that is to become a loving lovable Christian. It's not merely the regurgitation of theological concepts. It's not merely the expression of of spiritual principles or lining up all of your proof, proof texts that is compelling to the world. We need that. We need that line of thinking. We need theology. We need Bible studies. We need the right arguments. We need all of that stuff. But it must first be saturated with the love of Christ. And then when that happens, we will find that we will have explosive results in our ministry to other people. We will have Acts chapter 2 experiences, I believe with all of my heart, where the church of God will grow exponentially when the truth of God and the love of God are married one to another. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning we're going to look at the second part of 1 Corinthians 13, but I want to just quickly run over the preamble here. What does Paul say in his introduction of 1 Corinthians 13? We read this last night. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31, Paul says this, But covet earnestly, covet how? Earnestly, the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way, or a way that is beyond comparison. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the purpose that God gives us the gifts of the Spirit, and he lists them in verse 28 and in other places in the chapter. But the primary reason why God gives us the gifts of the Spirit is for the advancement of the cause of God. The purpose why God gives us the gift of tongues, the purpose why God gives us the gift of evangelists and pastors and teachers and all of these things is so that the gospel can move forward in a rapid fashion, hopefully by God's grace to bring this world to an end sooner rather than later. But Paul tells us that not only are we to covet earnestly the best gifts, but then he says, yes, these gifts are good. These gifts help in the in the, in the spreading and the advancement of the gospel. But then he says, now I'm going to show you something that is Beyond comparison. Now I'm going to show you something that adds power to the advancement of the cause of God that is so amazing, that is so all-encompassing, that it is beyond comparing it to something else. That's the preamble to 1 Corinthians 13. That this, what he is about to tell us, will help the gospel move forward in a fashion that we have never experienced it before. And then he goes on and he says... Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And he moves on from there in his description of love. Remember, it's the love of Christ expressed in our lives that will give evidence that we are disciples of Christ. And so this morning I want to look at the second part of 1 Corinthians 13. Those of you that are taking notes and were with us last night, you will know, or you will remember, that 1 Corinthians 13 is divided into three sections. We're looking at the second one this morning. The first section of verses 1 through 3 is where Paul talks about the supremacy of of love, he he gives five contrasting statements. There, we went through two of them in our time together last night. We won't review that at this point. The second point, or the second part of 1 Corinthians thirteen, verses four through seven, is where Paul gives us the characteristics of love, or he analyzes it and gives us the, uh, the what love is made out of, the fabric, the details of love. Verses eight through thirteen, Paul talks about the permanence of love, that it will abide. Uh, and it will never come to an end. We will look at that in our time together this afternoon. But let's turn and look at 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 and see what Paul has to say here. In a sense, what Paul is doing is he's taking agape, he's taking love, and he's putting it under a microscope. And he's going to break it down for us in its basic parts. He's, he's giving us the stuff That agape is made out of, the fabric, the details of what it is in verses 4 through 7. Let's read that together here. The Bible says this, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not, the word easily should not be there, provoked thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have agape one towards another. It's kind of sad that 1 Corinthians 13 largely has kind of been relegated to the wedding time. When people are uniting their lives together in marriage and they read 1 Corinthians 13, this is far more above and beyond uh, what, what a marriage is. This goes beyond that to how we treat one another and really who we are as God's people. What Paul does here is he takes agape and he shines it through the prism of God's word. Just like you take light and you shine it through a prism, on the other side of that prism, what do you see? You see the rainbow, right? So that that prism breaks down light into its component parts and you see the beauty of the rainbow. Paul is, in a sense, doing the same thing here with agape. He's shining it through the prism of God's word, shining it through the prism of Jesus' life. And as you see it on the other side, it is broken down into its component parts and we see the beauty of the colors of agape and the the different uh, hues that agape is comprised of. Paul is breaking it down into its parts here for us to understand now it's interesting when you look at this description of agape in 1 corinthians 13 4 through 7 it almost it's almost like paul is describing somebody to us look at it again in your bible and as you read it through it's almost like paul is describing somebody and i don't think you will argue with me on this that really what paul is describing is he is describing to us the character of god amen God is love and he's breaking down what love is. He's describing to us the character of Jesus. He's describing to us the character of God. In fact, when Moses asked to see the glory of God in Exodus chapter 33 and God shows him his glory, there's an overlap in that description there with 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven. And so Paul here is in a sense, he's describing Jesus to us. He's describing what type of love is making up his character. But here's the question that I wanna ask you this morning. As you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, can you put your name in that verse? Sure, we can read the verse and we can say, Jesus suffereth long and is kind. Jesus envieth not. Jesus vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. But can we read, Jason suffereth long and is kind. Jason envieth not. Jason vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. Take the time to do it. Put your name in that chapter. I don't know about you, but when I did that, when I sat in my office and I challenged myself with that, it made me uncomfortable. And it ought to. Because we are far from what the description of God's character is, the the ideal that God has for us. This description that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is not merely a description of Jesus, but it is a description of Jesus' people and Jesus' followers. Because the Bible tells us in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, just jot it down in your notes. 1 John 3, sorry, 1 John 3, 2, the Bible says that when Christ shall appear, we shall be what? We shall be kind of like him, right? We will be maybe like him. When Christ comes, we will be changed like him. Is that what it says? No. It says when Christ comes, we what? We shall be like him. When Jesus comes back, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is not just going to be a description of Christ, but it is going to be a description of Christ's followers. Amen? Amen? This is going to be the description of the character of God's people. God's people are going to be made up of the stuff that Paul tells us 1 Corinthians 13, or agape love, is. Jesus, as he continues his conversation with the disciples in the Gospel of John, he repeats himself in John 15 and verse 12. Again, write that down if you would. Again, he says, this is my commandment that you agape one another as I have agaped you. He's trying to hammer this point home with these bickering men that they need to have a love towards one another as he has had towards them. I want to tell you something this morning. The only way that this can happen is if we allow God to create it in our hearts. The experience of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is humanly speaking impossible. When I put my name in that section of of the chapter, I almost became discouraged. But when I looked at Jesus, when I looked at what Jesus can do in and through me, my encouragement came back and I said, Lord Jesus, this is the experience that I want. Please give it to me. In the book, Christ Object Lessons, page 158, we're told this. We may be active and we may do much work, but without love, such love as dwelt in the heart of Christ. Are you ready for this next part? We can never be numbered with the family of heaven. We can be, never be numbered with the family of heaven without having the love of Jesus in our hearts. You see, heaven is an atmosphere of agape. That's heaven. Heaven is agape. And before we can get to the, uh, the atmosphere, the, 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 the place of agape, it first has to be in our hearts. There's another place where Ellen White tells us that when we are changed into the character of Christ, that we are fitted for heaven because heaven is in our hearts. When we have that love in our hearts, it's almost like God says, Listen, Father, I don't, they don't need to be down there any longer. They have heaven in their hearts. We need to bring them up here like we brought Enoch, like we brought Moses, like we brought Elijah. We need to bring them up here because they have heaven in their hearts. They need to be where heaven is. Before Christ can come back, this thorough heart transformation has to take place. In a sense, we have to lay on the heavenly operating table and allow God to take the precision scalpel in his hand and open up our spiritual chest and take out that stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. Give us a heart that beats agape, 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 agape. Change us, thoroughly transform us. Listen, when somebody has heart surgery, they don't do it themselves. When somebody has heart surgery, it is a painful process. And many members who've had heart surgery. But the result is an extension of life. And I'm going to tell you this morning, you cannot do that spiritual heart surgery yourself. You have to let God do it. And when you allow God to do it, it will not just extend your life for a little bit of period of time, but it will give you the gift of eternal life. Amen. Lord Jesus, put me on that operating table. Take me into the theater of the operating room of heaven and take out the stony heart out of my chest the heart that I was born with, the heart that the world wants me to hold on to and Satan wants me to hold on to, and give me a heart that beats like Jesus. I'm only going to have a time to look at three of the characteristics here that Paul gives to us about agape. There are 13 of them if you count them out in verses 4 through 7. We will quickly move through three of them in our time together this morning. This is a longer series of presentations. I've boiled it down Uh, To just a few points here this morning, and I'll leave the rest of it for you to go back and study on your own. But the first thing that Paul says in verse four is that charity suffereth long and is kind. The idea of suffering long in the Greek, the Greek defines it to be to be patient in bearing the offences and injuries of others. Have you ever been offended? Have you ever been injured by somebody else? Do you still hold resentment about that thing that happened, that offense, that injury? The Bible tells us that agape, the heart of Jesus, does not hold on to that kind of stuff. Charity suffereth long and is kind. It is patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. Are you thankful for the patience of God with you? Do you offend God when you sin? Does it injure God when you sin? Does he throw you to the side and say, forget you for doing that. You're causing me too much pain. You're causing me too much suffering. Does he go around heaven bad-mouthing you to all of the angels because of what you have done to him? Yes or no? No, and the heart of Jesus in the heart of human beings is going to respond in a similar sense when I am wronged, when I am mistreated, when I am not being uh, treated in the way that I should be. The Bible tells us that the character of Jesus is patient in bearing with the offenses and injuries of others. There's no doubt we live in a time where we are irritated and made impatient But agape will be the only remedy to this type of impatience in the world today. In fact, it's interesting. The time that we live in, impatience has almost become the norm, has it not? When you really think about it, impatience in some circles has become even expected, excused, and in some places, even praised, has it not? And in many cases, when we are impatient and we tell the person why we become impatient, we're in a sense justifying that impatience and, we're, and, and, and it's like the other person in a sense kind of understands. Yeah, that's, you, you, had a, you had a right to be impatient given what happened to you. But according to 1 Corinthians 13, that's not the way we are to respond. In the heart of Jesus when we are mistreated we are patient in bearing with those uh, offenses, offenses that other people have showed towards us interesting little article I stumbled across in my research on this uh, concept of impatience. This is from NPR. It says this, we speed date, we eat fast food, we use self-checkout lines in the grocery store, Uh, we try the one-week diet. I wonder how that went. Pay extra for overnight shipping, honk when the light turns green, thrive and dive on quarterly earning reports, and speak in half sentences, start things but don't That's a pretty accurate description of our time, isn't it? We live in a very impatient society. And listen, friends, if we can't be patient with these types of things, there is no hope that you're going to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of other people. I remember one time I was in the grocery store. I had all, I'd gotten all my things that I, I wanted to pick up. And I was walking down the aisle right by the checkout lines, right? You're walking down there, and and you're looking at all the checkout lines. What are you looking for? The shortest line. Why? Because you're in a hurry, and you're maybe a little impatient. And so you're walking along, and you're looking for the shortest line. And I find the shortest line, and I pull my cart in, and I stand there, and I wait, and I wait. And in the longer lines, the guy's already gone. Right? Have you ever had that happen to you before? And you're wondering, what in the world's going on? I picked the shortest line. And now the person that was two people behind me, he's already walking out the store. And this was happening to me. And I looked up at the person in front of me that was at the cashier, and I couldn't believe it. She was writing a checkout in the grocery store. I thought that went out with Fred Flintstone. And she's right. She, who do I write it out to? Okay, yeah. How much is it for? Okay, okay. And she, she's right. I'm thinking to myself, you got to be kidding me. And then the Lord spoke to me and it's right around the time I was studying this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And he said, Jason, love is patient. Right? If I can't be patient in that situation, if I can't be patient when the, the little old lady in front of me is writing out her check in a, in a very slow fashion, how in the world am I going to be patient with the injuries of other people towards me? We have come to a time in society where impatience is the norm. And I'm sad to say it this morning that I believe it's even becoming the norm within the doors of God's church. That's not the character of Jesus. And it's not the character that will get us into the kingdom of heaven. Today's social norms are in conflict with the description of the character of Jesus. And more and more, I believe we're seeing these social norms becoming the norm in the church. And it's time for that to end. Because God's going to take a people who are like him when he comes in the clouds of heaven. Lord Jesus, do that heart surgery that only you can do. Bible also says not only is love patient in bearing with the offenses of others but it is also kind. Have you ever noticed as you leave through the gospels maybe you've noticed this before but if you haven't maybe you can try next time you go through the gospels have you ever noticed how much time Jesus spent being kind to other people? Do it. Next time you go through the Bible, next time you go through the Gospels, just notice, take note, just jot it down, and you will find that the overwhelming majority of the time, Jesus is laboring in being kind to other people. Even if they're not kind to him, he's still kind back to them. The Bible tells us that the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the agape of Jesus is kind in dealing with other people. As a parent, there is nothing that brings me more joy than when I see my children being kind to one another. Those of you that are parents understand this. Just the other day, uh, we gave our children a gift, and and we liked them to learn how to share. So we oftentimes don't buy two, we'll buy one, so they have to learn how to share. And my, my daughter, she loves to be the one, the, my oldest daughter, to open up the back package and show it to everybody. And so she's opening up the package, and usually she wants to hold on to that thing, and she has a hard time sharing it. And as I sat there and, and watched her, she was opening it up. She took it out, and she said, here, Christian, do you want to see it? And I about fell on the floor. I said, whose daughter is this? I said, hallelujah, all the prayers are starting to pay off. There is nothing that brings more joy to the heart of a parent than to see his children being kind to one another. And there is nothing that will bring more joy to our heavenly father than when he sees his children being kind one to another. Even when they're being mistreated. Even when they're not being treated in the way that they deserve to be treated. It Brings joy to the heart of our father. Mark Twain, I don't subscribe to much of what Mark Twain has to say, but he once said this, Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Lord Jesus, give me that kindness. Give me a kindness that deaf people can uh, hear and blind people can see. Give me a kindness that just exudes out of my heart, that just pours out of who I am, that I cannot respond in any other way in any given situation because that is who I am. I can only respond in a kind and loving manner. George Fox, an English reformer, he made this interesting statement. He said this, I know Jesus, and he is very precious to my soul. Is Jesus precious to you? But I found something in me that would not keep sweet and patient and kind. Have you ever had that experience before? And then he said this, I did what I could to keep it down, but it was there. Have you ever tried to get rid of those things that are not sweet and kind in your life? Try to push them out, try to shove them out. And then only to find out that they still come up again. I besought Jesus to do something for me. And when I gave him my will, he came into my heart and he took out all that was not sweet and all that would not be kind and all that would not be patient. And then he shut the door. That's the experience I want. Amen. That's the spiritual heart surgery that the Bible tells us that God wants to do where he comes in and he's the one that takes out all that's unsweet and kind and impatient. He takes it all out and then he shuts the door so that only in my heart resides the sweet presence of the character of Jesus. World world's starving for this kind of stuff. And God has brought us into this world so that we can manifest it to others. Verse 5. Verse 5, Paul goes on and he says this. He says that charity doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. This is all good stuff. Can't do it though right now. The last one he says in verse 5 is thinketh no evil. Three words, thinketh no evil. The Bible doesn't say it thinks a little evil. The Bible says it thinks what? None. No evil. There is no room for evil in the heart of agape. There is no room for thinking evil in the character of Jesus. There is no excuse for thinking evil in the character and in the heart of agape. The Bible says it thinketh no Evil. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7. Jot it down if you would. The Bible says this. For as he thinketh in his heart, so what? Is he? If my heart is thinking evil, then what kind of heart am I going to have? An evil heart. But if my heart is thinking First Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, what kind of heart is God going to give to me? That. This heart of agape. The Bible says he thinketh no evil. Of course, you know this quote from... Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 310. The Bible says if the thoughts, or the Spirit of Prophecy says if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings are wrong, and the thoughts and the feelings combined make up the what? The moral character. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the Bible says that agape thinketh no evil. Lord Jesus, please give me that Experience. One writer put it this way, we sow our thoughts and we reap our actions. We sow our actions, we reap our habits. We sow our habits, we reap our characters. We sow our characters and we reap our destiny. When Jesus comes back, we shall be like him. And it's not going to be your doing. It's going to be the doing of God. He's going to be the one that does it for you, for He's the only one that can do it. You'll remember with me in your Bibles, back in Genesis chapter 6, right before, the Lord, uh, before, right before God destroyed the earth with a flood, the Bible tells us that the thoughts of man were what? Only evil continuously. The Bible says that as a result of their evil, continuously evil thoughts, that the world was filled with corruption and violence. What happens when we choose to think evil fonts? It brings corruption into our hearts. It brings violence into the world. It changes us not into the character of Jesus, but into the character of the enemy of Jesus. Charity thinketh no evil. So what does this mean? In the original, the word, uh, or it literally means the idea of thinking no evil. It literally means that agape does not take inventory of or keep records of other people's wrong actions. Did you catch that? They do not keep record of other people's wrong actions. You know, some of us are like accountants when it comes to people's wrong actions. Come on now. And some of us are very accurate accountants when it comes to other people's wrong actions. We would win awards for our accuracy And the Bible tells us that when it says, charity thinketh no evil, it means it does not keep an accurate score of what people have done, bad things that they've done towards us. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, it translates it, it keeps no record of being wrong. Keeps no record of being wrong. The best way to describe this Maybe you haven't had this experience, but I've been privileged to have this experience. The best way to describe this is to use the description of a mother's love. If you were to ask my mother what kind of child I was when I was growing up, she would give you a very glowing report. If, if you just took my mother's report, you would probably think that I was the best kid that ever lived on the face of the earth. Because something happens in the mind of many mothers that as their children go up and as they move on to do other things in their life, they tend to have amnesia when it comes to the wrongs of their children. And all they can remember is all of the good things that they have done. And I literally believe this, that in the mind of my mother, she has literally forgotten all of the bad that I have done. And all that she can remember is all the good things that I've done. How wonderful I was. And all of these flowery things that make you turn red in the face and blush and want to just go away when you hear your mother talk about this. And this this is what it means when it says it thinketh no evil. When it comes to the faults of others, we have a very faulty memory. We can't remember those things. But when it comes to the good things that other people have done, our memory is just riveted on those types of things. It's a paradigm shift from what the world excuses to what God wants us to be. Acts of the Apostles, page 319, says this. Christ-like love places the most favorable Construction on the motives and acts of others. It does not necess- uh, needlessly expose their faults. It does not listen eagerly to unfavorable reports, but seeks rather to bring to mind the good qualities of others. Think about that person that you have a hard time with. Think about that person that makes your life miserable. When you think about them, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Is it good or bad? Boy, there's some that want to be honest this morning, huh? (laughs) It's all right. Honesty is good for the soul. But what really should happen is when we have this paradigm shift in our mind, when we think of that person that makes our life a challenge, makes our life miserable, the first thing that should pop into our head is something good about them. And I challenge you with this this morning to take a moment and think about that person, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a boss, whether it's a a, a fellow student, a teacher, whatever it is, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's even a church member that just really has the ability to push your buttons. And I challenge you to come up with three things that you admire about that person. Are you serious? You want me to find something I admire about them? And don't just stop there, but go on down the list of all those people that give you a hard time. And instead of remembering the hard things or the the hard things that they've done to you, have a mind that remembers the good things, the good qualities, the good characteristics. But you say, Jason, there's nothing good to see. It's because you haven't looked hard enough. It's because you are looking through a filter that can only see the bad and not the good. You need to ask the Lord to rebuke that spirit and to give you the eyes of Jesus that will be able to see the good instead of only seeing the bad. Agape thinketh no evil. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. The problem that we have as carnal human beings is that I think we sometimes have more satisfaction <clears throat> holding on to the dirt that other people have done to us than trying to find out the good. It's amazing to me that people tell me they cannot memorize scripture, but they have no problem remembering the faults of other people. Is the preacher preaching the truth this morning? They can reach back into the deep recesses of their mind, and they can remember a grievance that happened to them 30, 40, 50 years ago. But if you ask them to memorize a Bible verse that is comprised of 50 words, they say, I can't do it. I can't memorize scripture. I don't think the problem is with our memory. I think it's what we find enjoyment in. And something needs to change in the heart of God's people. If we are going to get to heaven one day, we need to have the character, the love, the agape of Jesus in our hearts. Where all we are looking for is for the good. Now, that doesn't mean that agape makes excuses for sin. Okay? I'm not saying that you make excuses for other people's faults in your life. Listen, we live in a sinful world. People are going to do things that hurt us and what have you. I'm not saying that we make excuses for them, but we simply do not keep an accurate record of them in our minds. Steps to Christ, page 121, it makes this interesting statement. She says, if we keep uppermost in our minds the unkind and unjust acts of others, we shall find it impossible. We shall find it What? Impossible to love them as Jesus loved us. But if our thoughts dwell upon the wondrous love and pity of Christ for us, the same spirit will flow out to others. Amen. Ask that the Lord will take this away, this thinking of of bad thoughts about other people, and replace it with the mind of Jesus. We must hasten on. Uh, There's one last thing I want to look at here, and that is in verse 7. Verse 7, the Bible says that agape beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. There's so much in there that needs to be unpacked. We will only take one of those things. It's the first one that Paul mentions in verse 7. It bears all things. It's very similar to the last one that we looked at. Agape beareth all things. Perhaps the mental image that comes into your mind is taking a burden and, and, and shouldering it, bearing all things. But that's not accurate to the language here. It literally means, catch this, it literally means to cover over with silence. It means that agape keeps secret and hides and conceals the errors and faults of others. It bears all things. The NIV, I like the way it says it here. The NIV puts it this way, it always protects. It always protects. What does it protect? It's protecting the wrongs, the faults of others. Listen to this, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12. Write them down for the sake of time. Proverbs 10, 12, the Bible says, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. Lord, you want me to do that? You want love to cover up all sins, all wrongs that have ever been committed to me? That's what the Bible says. Hatred stirreth up strife, but uh, but love covereth all sins. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Listen to this. The Bible says this. Above all things, have fervent agape among yourselves. For agape shall cover the multitude of... Is that really what you want for me, Lord? Yes. That's what I want for you. I want my character to be so perfectly reproduced in you that when it comes to the sins of others, you cover them over. There's a story that illustrates this. Go with me in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood. The earth is in the process of being repopulated. And in verse 20, we find that Noah falls into a weak moment. The Bible says, and Noah Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the youngest, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and what did he do? What did he do? He told his two brethren without. When Ham saw the mistake of his father, when Ham saw in a, if you will, uh, the sin of his father, the fault of his father, what was the first thing, according to the Bible, that came into his mind? It's what we call gossip. Is it not? The first thing that came into his mind is, I'm going to go tell my brothers about this. And so he goes out and he blabbers to his brothers the bad thing that his father had done, the fault of his father. In verse 23, the Bible says this, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness, the fault of their father, and their faces were backwards and they saw not their father's fault. What did they do? What did they do? They covered it over. Shem or Ham wanted to talk about it to other people and broadcast it far and wide. And the other two brothers said, no, 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 no. We're going to go in and we're going to cover this thing up. Beareth all things. Cover with silence the faults and failings of others. And then the Bible says in verse 24, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, the sons of the family of Ham, A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant of the two which were blessed, the ones that covered or the ones that broadcast it, the faults of others. Can you see it this morning, yes or no? Charity beareth all things. When it finds out something that somebody else has done wrong, instead of it bringing a twisted, distorted sense of enjoyment to be able to share that with other people, instead it brings sorrow to the heart of the, of the child of God to see that another child of God has done something that hurts our Heavenly Father. And instead of enlarging that influence of that wrong, charity, agape, covers it over with silence. Silence. So that it doesn't bring any more pain to the heart of Jesus. Helen White says that the fault of him was reproduced in his descendants for many generations. And I think that the same thing happens when we are busy going around talking about other people's inconsistencies and weaknesses. You know, one of the things that we have adopted in our home, and we're not always successful on this, but we do it as much as we can. And that is when we're around our children, we try only to talk about positive things about other people. Really, that's the way it should be all the time. But there are times when situations arise and we need to discuss how we can help the other person to come out of their sin and into the character of Jesus. But we don't want to talk about that stuff around our children. We want our children to think well of other people, to have that ingrained in their minds that they automatically look for the good things about other people instead of dwelling upon the negative. And I think we need to do a little bit of that ourselves as God's children. I think we would do well to learn a lesson from the pearl oyster. You've heard the illustration before. Gets a piece of sand inside of it. And what does it do? What does it do? It covers it up, secretes this this substance that covers it up and covers it up and covers it up and covers it up until in the end it is a beautiful pearl. And I think if God's children would do that, we would find in our church pearls of patience, pearls of gentleness, pearls of long suffering, of forgiveness, of patience, all of these things. We would see them in our church and our church would be a more attractive place. Where people would see that our religion is not just a theoretical religion. It's not just theology. But that theology has so thoroughly transformed me that I have become like Jesus. Corey Ten Boom tells a story. One of her times in Africa, she met a man by the name of Thomas. Thomas lived in a little grass hut with his large family. Thomas loved Jesus and he loved people. Two unbeatable things to have in your in your character. But Thomas's neighbor across the dirt road hated God and hated people. And therefore, he hated Thomas. One night, Thomas's neighbor who hated him snuck across the dirt road in the middle of the night and he set Thomas's roof on fire. His whole family was inside there. Thomas smelled the smell of smoke and he ran out and he, he put the fire out to save his family. Went back to sleep. The next night, his neighbor snuck across the road, and he set fire to Thomas's roof again the second time. Thomas woke up in the middle of the night and he put the fire out and he saved his family. Third night, you'd have thought he got a watchdog. (laughs) But the third night, his friend again snuck over in the darkness of the night, and he was determined that he was going to destroy this man, and he set his roof on fire again. Thomas came out and he put the fire out, saved his family a third time. The fourth night came, and you would have thought Thomas would have moved out of the village. But the fourth night came, and his friend snuck across. And lit his roof on fire for the fourth time. That night happened to be a windy night. And you know what happens when there's fire and wind. And as Thomas was beating the flames out as he had done the last three nights, sparks went up into the air and drifted across the dirt road and landed on the roof of his neighbor and caught his roof on fire. Now I know what some of you are thinking served him right. <laughs> he deserved every bit of it. But that's not agape in our hearts. That's the world's way of thinking that has been programmed even into God's people's way, of God's, God's children's minds. But what Thomas did is what Jesus would have done. After he put the fire out on his own roof, he went across the street and he put the fire out on his neighbor's roof as well. And in the process, he severely burned his hands. The chief found out about this. And he got this man, this neighbor of Thomas's, and he put him in prison for what he had did to this fine, upstanding citizen of his village. That night, Thomas went to one of Corey's meetings. And afterwards, Corey had the opportunity of meeting Thomas. And she did what would come natural to most of us. She saw the bandaged hands and she asked him what happened. And Thomas reluctantly told Corey what had taken place the last week. Corey told him, you must be glad that this man is put in prison for now you and your family will be safe. And this is what Thomas said. I'm sorry for this man. He is an unusually gifted man. And now he must live together with all of those criminals in a horrible prison. When he thought about that man, what was the first thing that came to his mind? What he did to him? Mm -mm. He is an unusually gifted man. And it's unfortunate that he's going to have to spend prison, be in prison with all of those criminals. Corey suggested that they prayed for the man, and Thomas jumped on it. And they knelt down right there and Thomas lifted his bandaged hands up into heaven and he poured out his heart to God and he prayed. And this is the way Corey recorded it. Lord, I claim this neighbor of mine for you. Lord, give him his freedom and do a miracle that in the future, he and I will become a team to bring the gospel to our tribe. Amen. Amen. you know what Corey went through, time in concentration camps. And when she heard Thomas pray, she said, I've never heard a prayer like that before. A couple of days later, found Corey in the very prison where Thomas's neighbor was serving his prison term. She oftentimes went to prisons to talk to the prisoners. And that particular day, Thomas's neighbor was actually in the congregation when she spoke. And at the end of the presentation, she made an appeal for the people there to give their hearts to Jesus and to accept him as their Lord and Savior. Thomas's neighbor rocketed out of his chair, and that day he gave his heart to the Lord. Corey met with him afterwards. And she told him about her meeting with Thomas and how Thomas felt sorry that he had to spend that time in prison uh, with all of those criminals and how Thomas prayed for him, how Thomas loved him and wished him only the best. Corey told him that Thomas had prayed just a days before that the two of them would be able to unite their efforts together to bring the gospel to their tribe. And Corey, or, uh, Thomas's neighbor responded by saying, yes, yes, this is how it will be. And one can only wonder how many people will find in the kingdom of heaven because of Thomas and his neighbor's united efforts in bringing the gospel to their tribe. Can you fathom the person that gives you the hardest time becoming your closest confidant and worker together with the Lord? It's possible. It's possible. But we have to give our hearts to Jesus, and we have to pray and say, Lord, let the love of Jesus first take root in my heart, that it may be shed abroad to those around us. How many of you this morning want to say, Jesus, I'm ready to get on that operating table? I'm ready for you to open up my chest and take out the stony heart. And I'm ready for you, Lord, to give me a heart of flesh that is the heart of Jesus that is defined in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Is that your desire this morning? Let's stand together and make that commitment to the Lord. Dear Jesus, we thank you this morning that you find something valuable in us so valuable, in fact, that you have spent the resources of heaven to invest in us as your children. And I pray, dear Jesus, that we would go from this place and that you would do the necessary surgery in our hearts to change us from what the world would have us to be, what Satan would have us to be, to what Jesus is. Give us this experience, Lord. Give us the love of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. May that not just be a theoretical head knowledge, dear Lord. May it not be something that we just merely attribute to Jesus. But may it be said one day that this is the experience of those that are assembled here together this morning. Lord, we don't want to stay here any longer. We really want to go to heaven. Please, put heaven in our hearts. We thank you, Father, for answering this prayer and for doing the work that only you can do. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.